Well, we're really proud of you guys. Great win, man. Really, Great win. Really, really. You know, by the way, when I was down in New Zealand not long ago, I was bragging about you guys. They almost didn't let me off the island. You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, we are gigantic fans. And the three of us, when we were in law school and college, we played rugby, but never like you guys. Next on Rugby Wrap-Up, Legends of the Game, Spring and Hook. Rugby Wrap-Up brought to you in part by Sheehy Auto Stores. It's easy at Sheehy. Box for Grow, the future of cannabis farming. We box you in to increase your yield and profit. The Pig and Whistle, the world's best rugby pub. And Lean and Limber, stretching your way to a healthier lifestyle. Hello and welcome back to Rugby Wrap-Up. Matt McCarthy in New York City. Thank you for tuning in once again. And we have a special treat. We have legends of the game in Mr. Dick Spring and Mr. George Hook. And it's not every day that I wear a shirt and tie and a jacket for a rugby show, but these dignitaries certainly deserve it. George Hook, of course, is a familiar face and featured guest. He is the former director of rugby for USA Rugby, coach of the Irish women's national team, an assistant coach on Team USA's men's team in 1987, and famously a television rugby analyst for RTE Irish Television. Mr. Dick Spring, the former Munster and Ireland player, he had listed that first, I, curiously enough, but the captain of the greatest and oldest club in the United States of America, the New York Rugby Club, and this other thing called the former Deputy Prime Minister of Ireland. And it's, you say, not bad for a waiter at the Mad Hatter in New York City, Mr. Spring. All right, guys, let's get right down to it. Uh, I had a question out of the gate for the two of you. And Dick, you can take it first. Both of you lived here in America and were involved in the rugby landscape here. How did that happen for you, Dick, and why? Well, Back in 1975, I actually arrived in the States on a rugby wanderers from London. We were on a tour of the East Coast. And uh, at the time, I actually intended stay on after the tour or not. Uh, but things didn't work out quite like that. And I ended up, I was going to go to Canada where I had a job offer. But a friend of mine said, there's no money in Canada. Why don't you stay here? So I didn't intend playing rugby. I'd been up to my tonsils in rugby for the previous 10 years in college in Dublin. And uh, my friend said, but if you want to work in the Mad Hatter, uh, owned by John Barnes, one of the best known seasons, I had to play rugby. So I took on, uh, I decided I'd play on the wing in <laughs> never having played in the wing before. I, I said, I'd play on the wing just make a small contribution and never seeing the ball i ended up playing scrum half full disclosure i am a fellow member of the new york rugby club and i have some some i had some intel and some background on you from the likes of greg payne des o'brien jeff andrews the list goes on and on steve thompson and some of it's colorful that we can't get into on this program i, don't, I was, don't believe a word of it none of it's true i don't none of it is true absolutely not but if I'm not, if I'm getting this right, you were over here when you were already a barrister to save money waiting tables yeah. so that you could start your own practice back in Ireland. That, that was the idea. Um, well, originally I had decided I wanted to go to New Zealand 
And uh, many people have asked the question of why New Zealand, there wasn't a great connection between Ireland and New Zealand. I looked at the map and the furthest place on the globe I could see, the furthest place from Kerry was New Zealand. I wanted to get away. Um, my family were very heavily involved in politics and I thought it'd be nice to get to politics and nobody would know who Dick Spring was. So the plan was New Zealand, but unfortunately I didn't get there at that time. And works. I now have three grandchildren living in New Zealand. Our only daughter moved out there uh, with a Kiwi husband about uh, eight years ago. So it's now very much on our map. That's awesome. And George, uh, that segues to your experience in America as a rugby coach and popping up on the radar in New Zealand in 1987. Um, well, in 1985, I was having a cup of coffee in a Dublin hotel and I saw these American rugby players and I said, who are you? And they said, we're the old blues from California. And I said, who's the coach? And they said, Jeff Hollings, former Eagles hooker, but I didn't know that. Uh, I coached them with Jeff while they were in Ireland. As a result of that, I got an invite to address the National Coaching Conference the following year in Lawrence, Kansas. I met Ron Mays, who was preparing for the 87 World Cup. He asked me to assist him and George Betzler in the coaching of the Eagles in uh, Australia in the 87 World Cup. And then four years later, in an effort to avoid my creditors, uh, the police, uh, and uh, sundry other people, uh, I took a job as director of rugby uh, for USA Rugby. I was asked by Ron Mays, could I find somebody? And I said, absolutely, me. Uh, and I went there, and thanks to somebody who has just been installed in the Rugby Hall of Fame, Bob Holder at Rugby Import, sadly dead, Bob funded the whole operation. And I abandoned my wife and children and commuted from Dublin to Providence, Rhode Island, and ran rugby for five years in America before I was sacked, as happens to all the great coaches. Yeah, that was just, the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, Jack Clark thought he was rid of me by getting me sacked, instead of which I got picked up in television, and I had a real job for the first time in my life at age 55. Amazing, amazing. And, and they only fire the greatest coaches. I mean, we might want to add that, right? The, the, only the greatest get fired. George, you, you said... One topic dominates right-thinking rugby people. What, what do you mean by that? The game is doomed. That's why every dominates all talk. You can't have a game in which the possibility of people losing 50% of their lifetime through uh, early dementia and Alzheimer's caused by uh, rugby football, then the game for the first time in 150 years is unplayable by ordinary people. And the mothers of Ireland, New Zealand, and the rest of the world will be the ones, like the suffragettes of old, they will force world rugby uh, to make a change. But sadly, world rugby, with hundreds of legal cases coming down the track for, for, for men and indeed women uh, who are now facing early dementia, uh, then and are doing nothing. And in the last couple of weeks, one of the greatest prop forwards in the history of New Zealand, indeed the game, Carl Heyman, uh, at 41, has effectively uh, had the rest of his life ended. 
We can't have a game like that. And for the first time in my entire life, I will not see one second of rugby union in the November internationals of any kind because this game is not for me. What's the solution then? Because I, you know, I, I've gone on this both sides of this argument as somebody that's had, I've been knocked out six times. I've had double digit concussions and I, I look at it as it was all my choice. I, I, I knew what I was doing and I wasn't even getting paid. Well, you didn't know what you were doing. That's the whole point. Now we know if you were playing now, we would know what you would know what you're doing and you'd be able to make a choice. Did you tell me? I've got three grandsons playing rugby, all schoolboys. I'm not going to tell them not to play. What kind of a schoolboy at 12 goes up to his teacher and says, hello, teacher, my granddad told me not to play rugby. I'm not going to do that. But he's not capable of making the decision. He's utterly not capable of making the decision. At the other end, I have a real problem with young men risking terminal damage to their brains for the enjoyment of a beer-swilling audience of 70-odd thousand people watching it. True, they're going to get well paid for it, but that money will eventually be used for their care in later years. Dick, what's your take on this? Well, uh, George has a very valid valid point. Uh, Going back 15, 20 years, my late brother, who was the medical doctor, couldn't believe the physicality of rugby and the way people were getting putting their heads in as battering rams, basically, except that guys have gotten bigger and guys have gotten faster. Uh, and certainly the game is going to have to be changed looking at the number of injuries that are accumulating. So I, I think there's a real challenge. Part of the challenge is just how much rugby can people play? If you're 18 years old right now, do you play rugby again? Um, a lot of soul searching, I think. I mean, it's like George was saying about his grandkids, mine are a bit young to be thinking of games just yet. But uh, I think there'll be a lot of questions being asked. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's something that's been around for a long time. Dr. Barry O'Driscoll, you know, um, established a reputation trying to protect players. The powers that be weren't listening for a long time. They are beginning to listen. And I think the evidence is so We're going to have to address this question in the interest of people's safety. George, do we just stop playing? Well, we can change the game, you know. I mean, we're having, I mean, like just climate change. So suddenly we meet in Glasgow and, and the civilized nations of the globe get together and say, look, we can solve this problem. There, there's got to be a Glasgow of, of rugby and we've got to say, how are we going to make this game safer? Then world rugby can change it. So what have they done in an effort to make the scrum safer? They've made it more dangerous. In an effort to make the rock quicker, they've made it more dangerous. In everything about the game in the 21st century is immeasurably more dangerous than it was in the previous century and a half. And and like when I went to school and when Dick went to school, uh, the coach said to us, look for space. So we ran into space. What does the coach tell the modern player? He says, look for the biggest thing you can find on the pitch and run into it like some runaway tractor uh, in an onion field. And that's what the players do. The scrum half now no longer passes to the fly half. He passes more often, in other words, more than 50% of the time, to a player 
other than the fly half. Extraordinary. He finds he finds the biggest fella in his side to give it the ball to him to hit the biggest fella in their side. Now we get the ball back, we give it to another big fella. It's another big fella, ad infinitum. And we see, because the television commentators tell us, in all, they say, and we are now at the 32nd rock. Okay, so we do have some experimental changes going on, some experimental laws like the 50-22 and the in-goal dropout if you hold the team up in your, in your try zone. or your... So the, the purpose of the 50-22 is to try to open the game up for running attacks more instead of having all these guys lined up and you've got the guys that have to drop back deep, maybe even four players drop back deep, Dick, as a form of fullback. How do you see this law? Um, I think the jury is out, Matt, at this stage. Um, I really haven't seen enough of it being implemented. Uh, but in my, from my point of view, as I just take out the point George was making, we've got to get this game opening up again. You know, you have a ruck nowadays uh, with four people inside in the ruck, so you've got the other 26 waiting to clash off one another. No space. And, you know, what people want to see is uh, the back lines of old, like back lines of old, getting the ball out to the wing, taking the man on the outside, reverse passes in midfield. And there's no space to do this anymore. And that's a big, big problem. But, I, you know, I think the jury is out. Let's see how it works. The world's front row forwards have said the scrum is now more dangerous than ever before. And what are they doing about it? Uh, you know, this is a program. There might be children watching, so I won't tell you what they might what they're doing with it. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we're going to come back with Dick Spring and George Hook right after this. Looking for your next vehicle? With She's Easy Search, choose from over 3,000 new and used vehicles. Shop, trade, or buy online or in-store. We make it easy with our award-winning service. It's easy at If you're in New York City and want to watch some great rugby, have some great food, and some great times, go to the world's best rugby pub, The Pig & Whistle, on West 36th Street. back with mr dick spring and mr george hook gentlemen we had a lively first half of the show but i want to change gears a little bit dick you know a thing or two about politics i was just wondering what your take was on politics in rugby right now is it better worse or the same or absent as far as when you were actively playing rugby i would say that it has become a lot worse the politics of the present day game and of course, uh, a lot of influence or a lot of um, concentration now is on money. Uh, the game has been dominated by money and um, not a good thing in rugby in the old days. Uh, and there's a big challenge for the um, administrators. I think uh, they're really overplaying the players nowadays. I mean, in my time, the season was, it ended on the 1st of September again. And you had a restricted season and I think you got maybe 30 games max um, but whereas nowadays I, I just really worry year round 
um, in very difficult conditions, uh, testing conditions, up and flying all over the world, keep up with the pace. Um, so I think we've got to try and get back to restricted seasons and global game a bit more coordinated. Obviously, there's huge friction between Southern Hemisphere and Northern Hemisphere, which is unresolved as we speak. Then you have the politics uh, of the disciplinary process, which is a joke. So a fella uh, launches himself feet first, a New Zealander, and only the grace of God keeps the stud out of the, of the other player's eye. So then he gets a couple of weeks. So then they say, well, actually, he was a very nice fella when we talked to him. Yeah. So we have this. Uh, and then he apologized. So we took another week off. So then suddenly uh, the perpetrators of uh, abuse that would get them six months in jail if they did it in the street get three or four weeks what is one change that you'd like to see impacted or play in, in put into works in rugby george once upon a time, the scrum was a major attacking platform. So you got a quick heel from the hooker, the boat, the number eight could pick it up and transfer it to the nine. The nine could make a quick break and pass the blindside wing. The scrum was an attacking platform. And uh, a former coach of Dick Springs and my dentist, the great Roly Meats, believed that the quick ball in the scrum was one of the single most important attacking options in the game. The scrum is also what makes rugby union different from everything else on the planet. And they've destroyed it. Now, how have they destroyed it? I know a ton of your viewers are looking and saying, oh, no, he's going to talk about the scrum. I don't understand the scrum. Okay. So, viewer, if you're leaning up against the kitchen door and you want to push it open with both hands, would you put your feet straight back behind you so as soon as the door opened, you fell flat on your face? Or would you bring one or two both feet under you to support your body weight? Answer, no, of course. So for 100 years, the prop forward, the great prop forwards of the game, supported their own body weight by having their feet underneath them. Now, if you look at it, their feet are so far back, it's not true. So there's only one result. The scrum falls flat on its face. That's me, the scrum first, and then you can have the other stuff. Yeah, I couldn't disagree with the word George said there. I mean, we've got to be very careful about players' safety, and the scrum has become a very, very difficult uh, arena in the game now. There was a time when backs used to consider the scrum as where you got 16 guys in a, out of the way so the backs could play rugby, you know, have the, have the eight and eight. Um, but certainly we don't see that scrum be as part of the game now, the fast, the fast moving game that George was talking about that Rolly Meets was all in favour of. And you've got to find some way of getting back to that. Where, you know, of course, the other thing is there, there is no such thing as hooking the ball anymore. And that was one of the great skills uh, in the front row. But, I, you know, I don't think I've seen this. It's going straight into the second row now. So another skill set is being lost. So maybe it's time to re-look re at that again as well, to let the hookers get back to doing what they used to do. Playing here in the States, the one thing that you had, you could just watch the referee because the referee had to watch offsides, had to also watch whether the ball was being fed, you know, into the back row of the, of the scrum 
Whereas now it's perfectly acceptable and you can't go off sides because the assistant referees, the touch judges now are empowered. That's, that's kind of ruined the likes of somebody like me that relied on cheating, but that doesn't matter. But yeah, you're right. If you woke up tomorrow morning, George, and you were chairman of world rugby, you replaced Sir Bill Beaumont. What's your first move? My first move is, and, and it's the only move, is to call a high part conference, the equivalent of a climate change conference, uh, and, and tell the coaches, we actually don't give a hoops what you think. We are going to tell you the way this game is going to be played. And in, we're going to have a game for that it can be played by children can be played by uh, part-timers, in other words, people who have a job Monday to Friday and play rugby for fun on Saturday and can be played by professionals. If we don't, rugby is going to become like uh, the NFL in America, where uh, you have 350 million people and you have a thousand footballers who play after college. Nobody else plays football after college. Rugby has been since Victorian times a game of participation. We must get back to participation. Dick, same question. You are tomorrow the chairman of the board of directors of World Rugby. I think uh, the first thing I would do is, as we're just talking about, have player, player welfare as a major item on that. I think that um, we need to get back to restricted season uh, and uh, less pressure on the players so they can, you know, get through their rugby careers without major injuries and not have the problems that are have been piling up recently. And again, I think uh, you, you cut the cloth according to, you know, do you have to have 15 aside for schoolboys, for example, take out two wing forwards and you open up the game. And, you know, I still find uh, school by rugby very exciting, side on the pitch, but you could make it more exciting. These guys want to run, no inhibition, and, you know, they're not all. Um, so a few, I would put this player safety as number one issue on Fair the enough. agenda. Fair enough. Uh, and before I let you guys go, we had the All Blacks come onto American soil here in Washington, D.C., and the, the result was lopsided to say the least but what's kind of lost in all this the, the match against ireland was postponed allegedly because of the covid that's that's for debate but would you guys have been interested in seeing that usa ireland match particularly on the heels of the thrashing that the all blacks laid on us it's now uh 30 years since world rugby or whatever it was called the international board said america the sleeping giant yeah. of world rugby. Yeah. And we're going to keep it that way. It's still fast asleep. Dick, as a player, if you were on the American team, would you want to have played the All Blacks and then played Ireland? Um, I, I don't think it does that good for, for the game, for either side. Uh, I think there's a huge gap between the top division teams and the next division teams. And certainly, um, I don't think it's good for the even though great. Okay, they obviously like the idea of playing the best team in the world, but the the gap is so wide. I don't think it's good for either. Uh, it's and you know, unfortunately, the game last Saturday in Ireland, the the gap was, you know, the Japanese who did. I thought they were going to be a force to be reckoned with, but they played like a third division team in Lansdowne Road last Saturday, and that's not good for the game either. So I think there, there are a lot of questions about whether you should put pit these teams against one another 
Uh, it improves the weaker team and certainly does nothing for the stronger team. All right. I'm going to leave on a positive note. I want you guys in your lifetime, one moment that stands out in your rugby lives that was a positive. George, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think it's, um, I saw in 1954, I'm a 13-year-old schoolboy, and I'm peering through the wooden fence in the Mardike in Cork, and the New Zealanders have arrived. And remember, they haven't been in Europe since before World War II. So no, there's nobody in the ground to see the Haka, and we see the Haka. And then Dick uh, is too young to remember that, but the, the as proud Munster man, he and I will know that every time a side came to Munster and played in Cork or Limbeck, they got the fright of their lives. And that 1954 match was the first time I saw a touring team get a fright, and then I saw consecutive frights for the rest of my life. I've never forgotten that day in Cork. Yeah, I would say the uh, watching uh, O'Gara kick drop goals for the uh, Five Nations, Six Nations, or in fact, indeed, Johnny Sexton uh, dropping a goal against France, I think it was about four years ago. I was listening to the game on the radio down in New Zealand. And I think we had about 39 uh, parts of play and then Sexton. And he, I think he was playing in Paris at the time, possibly with Racing. And as the teams were shaking hands afterwards, you could see each of the French guys saying to Sexton, you be. Yeah. <laughs> great, great moment. I'm surprised neither one of you named the Irish win over the All Blacks at Soldier Field. I thought that might be up there, but okay, fair enough. Great memories, great stuff. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. I could talk to you guys for hours about rugby. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on, and I wish you the best and yours. And Matt, we'll talk to you about hurling and football the next time as well. <laughs> Fair enough. On behalf of Mr. Dick Spring and Mr. George Hook, I'm Matt McCarthy for Rugby Wrap-Up. Thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. And please check out our other segments, including our exclusive with the man they call the Beast, plus the College Rugby Wrap-Up. And look out for our upcoming United Rugby Championship shows. And please sign up for our Rugby Wrap-Up American Red Cross Blood Donor Team. <laughs> <laughs>